Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, put your seatbelts on. This British chap talks and thinks at the speed of light, but today we're going to attempt to bring him back to the lowly realms of the supersonic. Behavioural science and human psychology argues this industry veteran have been lost in the world of senior business leadership, marketing, tech, advertising, and crucially for today's conversation, the unsexy, sometimes dreary, overly rational, but massive and important discipline of business-to-business marketing. B2B, says Rory Sutherland, in a paper he's just written for LinkedIn's B2B Institute, titled The Objectivity Trap, accounts for 50% of the economy, yet it gets far less attention than the seemingly more glamorous world of business-to-consumer marketing. My guest today has a fabulous lineup of anecdotes about how and why B2B enterprises and marketers need to face their institutional bias to the rational, to product or service features and functionality, and move to psychological innovation because it's far easier, cheaper and testable than material innovation. Rory Sutherland also happens to think that marketers, and certainly B2B marketers, can play a leading role in this shift. So if you haven't heard of Rory, many of you will have. He's Vice Chairman of Ogilvy in the UK, co-founder of Ogilvy's behavioural science practice, Ogilvy Change, and he's a research fellow at LinkedIn's Global B2B Institute. So welcome, Rory. We're going to cover later what the hell behavioural science is and why it's on the rise. But first, let's talk through, I think, some examples of applied behavioural science. My rudimentary understanding of all this is uh, classically wine. Now, uh, in, the, in the case of wine in a restaurant, uh, behavioural science will say, give the customer three price points, uh, an expensive one, a middle priced and a low. And typically we'll go for the middle one because we don't want to be seen to be too cheap and we don't want to be too lavish. So we go mid. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's occasionally known as the Goldilocks effect, uh, which is that when faced with two, three choices, uh, we tend to go for the one in the middle, assuming they're along one dimension, uh, such as price quality, as it were. Um, And the wider lesson from that is that the way we choose and the way we perceive, in fact, is relative as much as it is absolute. So uh, just just to give an example, it's very difficult, I think, to buy a premium economy or a business class ticket as a consumer until you know what the economy price is. Now, to an economist, that will be irrelevant. Is it worth this much to get there this way? Actually, you need to know the comparative prices before you can make a decision. Similarly, of course, whether something's cheap or expensive depends on what you compare it to and what the context is. So if you take the example of Nespresso, one of the great advantages Nespresso enjoys is it isn't sold in a jar, so you don't compare the price to ground coffee or instant coffee. The individual pod you compare to, let's say, Starbucks or a coffee shop. Now, obviously, it's very expensive in one context and actually rather a bargain in the other. And so that finding that price perception is 
relative rather than absolute, I think is an incredibly important marketing discovery. And it's one of many from behavioural science. That's great points. And I think, uh, why don't we try uh, an example in, in business to business uh, as an example of how this works. And I think you've got a punch of them, but I, I, I love the one you talked about when we were talking earlier about DH, DHL, UPS and, and parcel delivery and what the perception of uh, what was important from those companies to their customers was quite different to the reality. So that's a finding where, I suppose, first of all, if you asked people what was important about parcel delivery, they'd talk about speed. Because we don't have full introspective access to what gives rise to our emotions. This is an important discovery because, arguably, people were often paying for parcels to be sent to them overnight, not to actually minimise delay, but to minimise the period of uncertainty. And you might argue that once you can track a package online, consumer preference may change. They may be quite happy with three or four day delivery, provided it's trackable. Now, the important discovery there is, I think, you can look for a pattern there and say, maybe we care more about uncertainty than we think and less about speed than we think. The Uber map, I think, is a miraculous piece of psychological innovation because it doesn't make the cab arrive any faster, but it massively changes the pain of waiting. The same principle, I think you, you say, uh, applies in, in, a, in how investment bankers work when they're pitching for big deals. Yes. Tell us about that. That's a refined version of the Goldilocks effect, um, which is that if you give people five options, this is at least in a B2B context, and you have five investment proposals, ranked in order of riskiness from one to five, with one being the most cautious and five being, you know, batshit, insane, crazy. Um, What apparently a lot of investment banks do is they build a bit of extra margin into two and four. Not three in that case, it's not the one in the middle. And that may be because nobody wants to choose one because it makes them look boring, five makes them look mad, three makes them look as if they're sitting on the fence and they can't make their mind up. So everybody has a strong predilection there to choose two or four. The same principles apply uh, in the case of, say, Rolls-Royce and its plans for supersonic jets. Tell us about that one. Well, just an interesting question, which is they've got a plan for a supersonic private jet. Now, my question I simply asked is, is it better, in fact, for all sorts of reasons, to sell the jet at a lower price but charge a premium for every hour you travel above the speed of sound? In other words, there's a degree of purchase and a degree of rent. That would also apply to certain aspects of, say, the Tesla. At the moment, you buy an autopilot pack with the Tesla. Now, that's just software. Now, it's conceivable that a third option should be that every day you want to use autopilot, you have the option of doing so for 50 quid. And so we need to start experimenting far more widely with how we price. Just a tip to marketers, quite often it makes it's a good idea to make offers limited to a certain group of people or a certain number of people because the feeling that you're getting a better deal than someone else, even if the reason you've been selected is slightly arbitrary or gratuitous, gives a higher perceived value to the discount. I do want to ask, though, Rory, in these relative pricing structures that you talk about, airlines have obviously been doing this now for, for quite some time where they break down, diff- pay more for your luggage or your weight, add on your meals and so forth. There is a sense in some quarters that the public uh, feel like that is sort of a fancy way to load them up uh, with some extra pricing. Does it work all the time? Or is there pushback on some of this stuff? 
Well, first of all, I mean, before I even go into this, I'm really, really glad we're on a marketing podcast and we're talking about pricing because pricing undoubtedly sits as one of the four or five P's of marketing. And yet increasingly over recent years, marketing has become shriveled, it's atrophied into Marcoms. And strangely, although I work for a Marcoms agency, I want to cover the waterfront. I want to go back to the days when agencies had discussions about pricing, positioning, distribution, not just conversations about effing typography. Once you become Marcoms rather than marketing, you're doomed. There's one question that I have to ask now, which is, um, which is around the agencies. You talk about the agencies being Marcoms, but that's exactly yeah. what they've become. And even though... By, by the way, it's totally moronic. We haven't been paid on commission, okay? as a creative agency since about 1992. And yet most agencies spend their time behaving as though they were paid on commission. In other words, seeking out those people, which tends to be not B2B, by the way. And so instead of asking the question, where can we add the most value? We're asking a completely redundant question, which is who spends a lot of money on bought media? But that's of no longer of any importance. And I think where we can often create the most value is in areas like B2B, where marketing thinking is and creativity are often most overlooked. So my question is, I simply start every working day by asking a different question, not where do we make money? Because let's be honest, okay, you're paid by the hour. Where you make money is a terrible, terrible proxy for where you add value if you're paid by the hour. You rightfully have a crack at agencies, but you'd have to suggest, you'd have to accept, though, that some definitions of marketing from marketers is equally about marketing communications or marcoms, as you as you talk about. So marketers are equally guilty here in some ways, right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I can't stand the diminution and the loss of stature that comes with that. And one of the things that makes me ecstatically happy is that the next um, chief executive of Ogilvy is actually the former head of Andy Main, mm. not only a Scotsman, but also the former head of Deloitte Digital. And so bringing in expertise which doesn't have these diminished expectations of its role um, strikes me as invaluable. It's what I've been ranting about for ages. Right, it's going to be interesting to watch him, right, because he's, um, he will shake the house up. It's just whether he can shake it up fast enough, I guess, is going to be the, be the question there. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Ogilvy's got it, as he spotted already, it's got it all in place, OK? The problem is, is and, and be better than most places, I mean, for a lot of historical reasons, OK, we, we've long been a direct marketing powerhouse, uh, we had American Express and IBM, I think, which were decisive clients in that they got us into tech early, direct marketing early, and, in, and, and into digital marketing early, uh, and to B2B. Because the great thing about having... American Express gave Ogilvy an extraordinary direct marketing strength, and that we then parlayed into a disproportionate strength in B2B. Now, look, we, we got we got carried away there on a, on a segue, which was most interesting, but... Back to the pricing question. Back to the pricing and airlines. What I think is where marketing's going wrong is we're trying to turn it into a science like physics, and it isn't, OK? Nothing about human behaviour, individual or collective, actually allows for reduction to universal rules in the way that physics does. And I think marketing is highly probabilistic. It's not deterministic. And also, I think it's complex. What you see in complex systems is forget about laws, because, as I said in my book, uh, in marketing, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea, OK? Um, and, I, and, and this is true if you read Robert Cialdini's book. In many ways, the six principles of persuasion are almost internally contradictory. You know, there's uh, reciprocation, but there's also, weirdly, consistency, which is we like people we've done a favour for. 
which is almost the opposite of reciprocation. Now, what I think we should be in the business of, and Amos Tversky spotted this, the partner of Daniel Kahneman, um, uh, who would have shared the Nobel Prize with Daniel had he survived, tragically died very young. For those that don't know, Daniel Kahneman is the guy behind behavioural economics. Yes, uh, he's he, he won the Nobel Prize for economics in 2001, I think, he, uh, even though he's a psychologist, not an economist. And he's kind of the godfather. Well, Adam Smith is really the godfather. We're going, we're going back a few hundred years there. Yeah. <laughs> patriotism there. But going back a few hundred years there, I mean, Adam Smith was as much a behavioural economist and philosopher as he was an economist economist. But um, uh, Amos Tversky said um, to, I think, in an interview with the New York Times, he said, what Daniel and I do is we take the things that are already known intuitively by advertising executives and car salesmen and we codify and classify them in a kind of recognisable scientific format. And good and people, good marketers, have always been good behavioural economists and good behavioural scientists. They've, you know, because it's a requirement, arguably. Okay, But they tend to have done it instinctively and they haven't necessarily codified or looked for recurring patterns in their findings. And that's what's so interesting about behavioural economics. You can take something which is a discovery in one field and you can ask whether it might be applied somewhere completely different. And that's what I mean by pattern recognition rather than rulemaking is the ultimate skill of the complexity scientist. Okay. Now, an example of pricing which I regard as inherently interesting, for example, is... Now, you don't have it in Australia yet. Apologies for this. I think it'll arrive very shortly. Five Guys, which is an interesting burger chain. Um, and the interesting thing about Five Guys is it prices in a very, very odd way. Certainly, it doesn't price in a way that an economist would recommend or in a way that market research would tell you was a good idea. The burgers are... Ins I'm going to pause now for that vehicle to go past. And apologise also for the, the seagull noises. I'm just down on the Kent coast at the moment. Um, the burgers are insanely expensive, OK? The milkshake is insanely expensive. Everything else is either generous or fairly cheap or free. So all the toppings of the burger, you know, if you want extra jalapenos, raw onions, cooked onions, whatever, everything except cheese and bacon is a free addition to your burger. So you can pimp your burger with gay abandon because there's no charge for any of that stuff. The fries, um, actually, although they come in three sizes, they give you a, a generous extra scoop of fries that you weren't anticipating. So even if you order the small, you've got more than enough fries, even for a large bucket like me. The Coke machine, which is a kind of advanced Coke machine, comes with completely free and unlimited refills. The peanuts are free. And it's an interesting case of kind of hypothecated price where you pay a lot of money for the thing you think makes a difference and you don't pay much for what you might call the commodity ancillary products. And you could argue that's a low-cost airline model where we're much happier paying for things separately, disproportionately more for one thing, less for another. Now, why that's interesting is, half-jokingly, I said you should apply the same to the tax system where income tax, which is a visible tax, should be entirely dedicated in the UK towards healthcare and education. Things people kind of like paying for, okay? And you should use the more invisible taxes, such as corporate taxation or indeed, you know, sales tax. You should use that to pay for defence as much as you possibly can. 
Because if you want people to willingly pay a bit more tax, which in the aftermath of COVID may be indeed you know, necessary, OK, if they feel, OK, the extra 1%, the extra 2% are all going towards health education and, let's say, social care, then those are tangible, concretized things which they can understand what they're getting. Once you argue this may be a psychological problem, not an economic problem, then the number of ways you can potentially experiment with intervention goes up by an order of magnitude. Right, and this is your point, behavioural economics is actually a Trojan horse to get psychology into the boardroom and marketing. Psychology matters, but marketing at the moment is a bit like, an, a bit like astrology. Well, here's a reframing thing, which I think would be the most extreme thing you could do if you were a marketer and you had a kind of fantasy wish list. I think in developed economies, and um, that undoubtedly includes Australia, UK, US, I think the barriers to economic growth are much more likely now to be demand rather than supply. And all of economics has set itself up as a discipline about the efficient provision of goods and has given no thought what... In fact, there's a thing called Say's Law, which is supply creates its own demand, which certainly anybody who's worked in the tech industry must know that's the biggest load of bollocks you've ever heard in your life. You can come up with utterly brilliant technological ideas which, when used, are perceived as being indistinguishable from magic. And yet, if you don't actually market those things ingeniously... Things like Zoom, which is teleportation, effectively, for the... But, you know, I mean, I, I, my children got bored with me saying this, but I said, I can do things now which I couldn't do if Ogilvy bought me a Learjet. You know, I can have a conversation with Australia first thing in the morning and Hawaii around about, you know, late lunchtime. It took a pandemic, for Chris' sake, to make us actually discover that technology. What was the problem with the adoption of Zoom and why was it so slow until we were forced to do it? You need something other than economics and market research to answer that question. And part of the problem was, imagine how much slower the mobile phone would have grown as a technology if, by some quirk of tech, mobile phones had only allowed you to call other mobile phones. Now, by being interoperable with landlines, the mobile phone could grow much, much faster because even if none of your friends had a mobile phone, it didn't matter because you could ring them on their landline. Now, in the case of Zoom, in a way, you had this problem which was in order to move a meeting from the physical space to the Zoom space, you almost needed a majority of people on board or at least a very noisy minority before you could affect the shift. It wasn't an individual decision. And so meetings reverted to the default of physical co-location in the same way that, you know, effectively everybody would have been talking on landlines for another 10 years if my parallel universe theory of the mobile phone had happened. So there's something going on there, which is if we just had a better understanding of what are the obstacles here to the wider adoption of better, more efficient, more effective technologies, and the same thing in the consumer space, but B2B is particularly important. And this is how you apply, this is how you apply though, Rory, this is, how, this is what you say applies uh, to getting psychology back into the boardroom and marketers and more so B2B marketers, right? B2B marketers need it even more because I think you argue they are too rational they're too feature and functionality driven they're very focused on call to action and uh defensive decision making so tell us about how b2b marketers yeah so there, there are a whole variety of things one there's the reason this paper was called the objectivity trap is it's very very easy in a business setting to make a decision 
based on the pretense that everybody is objective. And in B2B, of course, it's based on the assumption, well, obviously you need marketing for consumer goods because people buy crisps and lager for all manner of irrational reasons and, you know, associations and God knows what. But when it comes to making a business decision, obviously we have procurement and we have all these, you know, various functions. Um, and therefore, a business, when it makes a decision, is very close to that of homo economicus. And therefore, it's a kind of rational economic agent. And I would argue, in fact, the contrary, that when you put humans in an institutional setting, their biases in many ways become more pronounced, not less. And one of the biggest biases is, of course, that the consequences are very big. You know, you make a, bad, a decision which you're blamed for, you lose your job. You know, if you buy a bad packet of crisps, you throw it away and don't buy it again. Here we're dealing with seven-year decisions in many cases, a large amount of reputational skin in the game, a large amount of face-saving, but a huge amount of defensive decision-making, which is, to be honest, most business people would rather make a slightly bad decision that's easy to defend than a great, slightly risky, but objectively great decision that's hard to explain because the amount of blame that's going to accrue to you in the event that things go wrong, and things can always go wrong, OK, um, is not really proportionate to the quality of your decision. It's proportionate to the quality of your argumentation. And so very logical um, arguments based on the assumption of logicality in everybody you're dealing with, in particular cost-cutting, is overly... You know, people spend a ludicrous ratio of time trying to reduce price rather than to increase perceived value. Because of that assumption that everybody knows what the value is, that the value they perceive from something is objective, and our only way of progressing is to reduce the price. Now, put very bluntly, a large number of business problems, I think, derive from the fact that this has been pursued for such a long period of time, because put bluntly, you can't cost cut your way to growth. So outside of uh, B2B marketers reading uh, your paper, The Objectivity Trap, um, what should what should B2B marketers be doing now about trying to embrace uh, psychology or behaviour economics into what they do? And I guess it comes down to also that helps them further up the food chain into executive leadership. There must be someone on the board of directors of any organisation, and at the very least it has to be a non-exec, but it's absolutely essential to have someone with a marketing mindset. That doesn't necessarily mean a marketer. But someone who's responsible for, yes, but what does this look like, not seen from, via a balance sheet, but seen via a, the eyes of a long-term customer. And by the way, the very long-term nature and non-anonymous nature of B2B relationships uh, means, again, there are a whole load of emotional factors uh, which need to be considered which probably don't apply when you make a sim single one-off transaction in a B2C context, because a lot of B2C activity is kind of anonymous. But if you have anything long-term, and the same would be true of utility companies, for example, you know, if someone writes a letter of complaint to their electricity board, the same would apply to their ad agency, OK? So the first sentence is very likely to be, I have been a customer of yours for nine years. Imagine my horror when. Now, to an economist, the duration of a relationship is immaterial. You pay for what you get, and then when you stop getting value for money, you go somewhere else. It's clearly obvious that humans have evolved to uh, participate in relational capitalism alongside transactional capitalism, and the rules of, them, of the two are fundamentally different. 
Relational capitalism includes a kind of area of insurance, which is I will be reasonably loyal to you, but on the implicit and tacit understanding that occasionally you'll go the extra mile for me. And the terms of that relationship can never be fully captured in legal documents on paper. It's implicitly understood. And so that's another psychological factor in B2B. What, what I've got to get to is some practical tips for B2B marketers. And then I'm also going to ask you uh, if someone's, if you've got a marketer or anyone who's in marketing communications, what should they be doing? Uh, and then we will have to wind it up. This would be my proposal. First of all, um, you need to create a few new offices. One of them, I would argue that you should actually merge innovation and marketing into one department. R&D, innovation and marketing should be one entity. And the reason I argue for that is they are, this is a very Peter Druckery kind of thing. You know, there are only two things that add value, marketing and innovation. Everything else is a cost. That's an Austrian economics view of how capitalism works fundamentally. And I would argue that marketing and innovation, first of all, need to be bedfellows. In many ways, they're more than bedfellows. They're the same thing. Because there are two great ways you can sell something, you can create new economic value. You can find out what people want, and I mean really want, not what they tell you they want, but find out what people really want and work out a really clever way to supply it. Or you can work out what you can make and find a really clever way to make people want it. If you don't have both, you've got nothing. But Rory, it's a very clever proposal, but can a marketer do that uh, uh, without the uh, buy-in from the CEO and the board to actually merge, merge innovation? If you went to the innovation department and the R&D department and you offered to make yourself subordinate to the head of R&D um, and you made him your mate... I suspect you could do that. Um, you know, it'd be a bit of empire building for him. Uh, he would see it as the possibility sometimes to blag a bit of your media budget and spend it on R&D, which would be an entirely appropriate thing to do under some circumstances. Under other circumstances, you need to do the opposite. If you were Zoom, you probably needed to be spending less money on tech and more on getting people to adopt it. The second thing I would do is I would um, deliberately make the point that we need to have separate budgets and separate metrics for experimentation. Because there's a dis if, you, if you only have one metric and it's short term, um, and particularly if you look at the, you know, the general longevity of marketing directors, it tends to be a bit short term, tragically at the moment, uh, then anything you do which is learning looks like a cost in the short term. So you have to partition... Uh, your budget and say, this bit is exploit. This is where we spend money exploiting what we already know. And then this 20% say, it's somewhere around that kind of, you know, order. Uh, this is for explore, not exploit. This is for finding out what we don't yet know and for trying things we, we've never tried before. And specifically for experimenting with those possible areas of testing which defy conventional wisdom, where the chance of success is relatively low, but the payoff in the event of success is disproportionately high. The idea is actually a small part of the thing. Actually selling the idea to a point where it gets widespread adoption, which is marketing, is the greater part of the challenge. And so the marketing, this is why I think actually, you know, the really great inventors, if you look at Jobs or you look at Edison, okay, they're not inventors, they're, they're hucksters, right? Otis, the elevator guy, okay? The guy who basically made tall buildings possible. He spent his time going to fairgrounds, demonstrating elevator cars, cutting the cable and showing how the car didn't plummet to the ground. 
And that salesmanship, which is much less fashionable than science, is actually more important than science in terms of economic growth and the development of civilized society. The ability to take marketing thinking into areas where it's been previously underexploited is, the, from in economic terms, the greatest possible opportunity. And that particularly means B2B. Final observations then, what would you say to someone who is in marketing communications or Marcoms who you say is too narrow? What, what should they be doing? Yeah, how do you break out of this? Because the, the thing you have to do is you have to use behavioural science as a foot in the door on a Trojan horse because you can use that to talk to people and go to meetings with people. We also need to have this conversation with government and saying that actually uh, the reasons things are problematic nowadays are much more likely to have a psychological origin than they are to have an economic one. Rory Sutherland, I am hardly surprised it's been a tour de force. We've touched on some things, not everything. We need to. Some things. I am happy to do a follow-up. Yes, I think we should because we're out of time, but it's been fabulous. I think um, the, the biggest bit of advice that I can give to listeners is get a hold of the objectivity trap. I've read the paper uh, and it's uh, backed by the B2B Institute. Rory Sutherland, I think we will have to come back for another 40 minutes. Um, thanks for joining us and and um, stay safe over there. Thanks, Paul. I think we will do a reprise of this. Um, particularly, I'd like to talk more about the whole business of flexible working and remote working, of which I'm a huge evangelist. But, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, so, anytime. Bye for now, and thank you very much indeed. Rory, thank you. I'll take you up on that one. Talk next time. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.